Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a special live 2 p.m. edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We wanted to come to you live this afternoon because, as you well know, voting is underway across the state of Georgia. It goes until 7 o'clock tonight. And uh, so we thought we'd uh, do the show live this afternoon to keep you up to speed on how things are developing as uh, people go to the polls on this, the final day of voting in the 2022 midterm elections, Election Day. Let me get right to the panel so we can begin our conversation. I'm joined by Leroy Chapman, Managing Editor of the Atlantic Journal-Constitution. And Leroy, um, we all noticed that you have on, because we see each other on WebEx, you've got your voting sticker on. You went to the polls today. Yes, I did. I prefer to uh, vote in person, and I, and I like to do so on Election Day. It is ritual for me, so uh, I uh, did my due today. Uh, uh, Gabe Sterling, the Deputy Secretary of State, says that across the state, the average wait to vote is two minutes or less. Uh, what was your experience like today? So I, I chose a time where I thought that uh, the, the lines would be light, and I was correct. So I was in and out in about uh, about five minutes. So it was very good. Oh, that's congratulations for uh, getting that done so quickly. Donna Lowry is with us. She's host of GPB TV's Lawmakers. Donna, I think you have a special edition of Lawmakers Beyond the uh, Dome coming up on Sunday, right? Tell us about it. That's right. After the election, it's going to air. So it's this Sunday at 5 p.m. on GPB TV. And what we focus on are the education laws that were passed during the previous legislative session and how people feel about them, how they're playing out in classrooms, and more importantly, how they're playing out in school boards at school board meetings. And so that will air um, on Sunday at 5 p.m. It's a one-hour-long program, lots of uh, eight panelists, so lots of good opinions on each side. And uh, we traveled the state to get some information, too. Oh, terrific. All right. Thank you for that. Riley Bunch, GPB's uh, public policy reporter, is with us. And today, Riley, an election reporter, uh, you're going to be out at uh, one of the campaign headquarters. Tell us about that. Oh, yes. It's been a long day and it's going to be a long night. Um, I will be with Democratic candidate Stacey Abrams tonight at that election party. And I will call in a little bit later in the show so our, we can talk about that in the, with the host. Um, okay, that sounds terrific. Are, it is, um, were you out at polling places at all today? I was. I was at a place, a polling place in Fulton County, um, but then I was with U.S. Senate candidate Reverend Raphael Warnock. Um, just, I just walked through the door to come on the show. Oh, well, thank you uh, for that. I want to talk to you about uh, what you were doing with Warnock in a few minutes, but I first want to introduce Chuck Williams, who has been a uh, an esteemed, legendary reporter in Columbus, Georgia, for a very long time now. He's now at WRBL-TV in Columbus. And Chuck, you're getting set for a big night down there. We are. And I've been out a little bit at election places today, too. And it's, you know, it's, it's if you're a political junkie, and I know you are, Bill, this is kind of, this is, this is a pretty good day to, to be a political person. It's Christmas. It's Christmas Day, Election Day. <laughs> All right. Uh, let me make, uh, I, yeah, I want to turn to you in a second, uh, Leroy, because you're, you're doing, uh, your reporters are posting live updates uh, and have been throughout the day. Before I do, let me say that there was an interesting development in, the, in, in, in a Fulton County polling place uh, today. We've seen no evidence of any efforts to disrupt uh, elections here in Georgia, according to Secretary of State's office. We've seen uh, no efforts uh, to intimidate anyone as they voted. But in one precinct in Fulton County, Leroy, 
there were two people, I think it's a mother and daughter, who were election workers who were ejected when colleagues of theirs, apparently, according to the Washington Post, um, showed to the head of the election uh, precinct photographs of the two of them at the January 6th insurrection. And according to the Post, that was the reason those two were immediately dismissed from their jobs. But Leroy, your reporters in the metro area, the coverage area of the AJC, and reports we're hearing from around the state suggest it's been a calm election day, yes? Yes, uh, it's, uh, it's been calm. Uh, there's not been uh, the lines that we've seen previously. Uh, there's not been the shortage of uh, voting machines. That, uh, and, and there's not been any uh, technical problems that have been of significance. Uh, I think the only two things I've seen in Metro Atlanta is that uh, we had a, um, a precinct in Kennesaw and a precinct in Marietta. Uh, they had some difficulty with their machines early this morning. They did not get started at 7, and they're going to stay open later uh, as a result to give uh, voters there the full 12 hours to vote. So, uh, so it's been that. And going back to what you were mentioning about the poll workers, um, you know, we've reported and other media has too that uh, after January sixth, um, there was an effort uh, to get to recruit uh, some conservatives to become poll workers and even to become watchers. And so there was uh, the idea that in this election, uh, you would have people who would be watching, and that perhaps that could turn into some sort of voter intimidation. So we've been looking out for that. We've not seen that uh, yet uh, anywhere in Georgia, but we've been on the lookout. We've got uh, about two dozen people out uh, who've been going to polls uh, throughout Metro Atlanta, and uh, we've seen uh, very little evidence of anything of that sort. But we will continue following um, the story about the poll workers who were dismissed. Riley? Yeah, I would just follow up on that. Um, I had an interesting experience this morning out of Fulton County. There was a national television crew that had a camera just set videotaping the line, just what, you know, had a rolling feed of people walking in. And there were some voters who were like, what is that camera? You know, there wasn't anyone standing with it. So there were some voters that were concerned about this camera that was just rolling on the line. And I think that that is just, I walked up and I said, hey, I think it's with news. You know, I'm with the news too. Um, but I think that that just goes to show kind of, you know, the, the tense atmosphere that we have coming up in this election. You know, it was a really interesting experience. Chuck? We had a similar experience, Riley, uh, in early voting. Um, we were allowed to take our cameras into one of the sites, and one lady objected. You know, it's like, hey, I don't want to be on your camera. And we obviously turned it away from her, didn't use any of that video. But they let us in, they let us get video of people voting. But, you know, if somebody expressed concerns, we immediately went the other way because we don't want to do anything that would, you know, would make people uncomfortable, especially when they're in the sanctity of the, the, of the voting site itself. Yeah, there, there are any number of counties, and I certainly know in the city of Atlanta, um, Atlanta police have been deployed by the hundreds to polling places around uh, Atlanta just in case there are any problems. And I'm sure that that's true in many uh, counties across the state. Um, Donna, you went out and made a tour of a few polling places uh, today. What did you find? Well, I found that there weren't very many people voting. It was really light. And the, 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 what I was hearing from the few people I did talk to was that they felt that people really put a lot of attention into early voting. I tried to talk to a couple of poll workers uh, to jump on what we've uh, been talking about now. They were very, very nervous about saying anything, about talking to me at all, and been told not to, did not want pictures taken or anything. So uh, they're still... Um, uh, bless them for doing this. I know there's still a lot of fear out there about violence or anything that might happen to them. And then hearing about what happened in Johns Creek, I think just makes things worse for anybody interested in being a poll worker, worried that you might be at a polling place with somebody who is infiltrating the whole situation for the wrong reasons. All right. So with that in mind, Leroy, let me read you, uh, if I may, a, another uh, story from the Washington Post that uh, uh, raises the stakes in terms of the misinformation that's getting out there and how it could put election workers at risk. Again, thank goodness 
in Georgia. We've seen none of it, but this story relates to Georgia. I'm going to read you the whole item. Misleading videos recirculated months after they were shot, months after they were shot, carried unfounded claims that Republican voters are being barred from the polls today. Viral tweets spun early morning mechanical problems with vote tabulators into elaborate claims of systemic fraud. And here's where it turns to Georgia. Users on the pro-Trump extremist forum, The Donald, urged armed intervention at ballot counting centers in Georgia, advising if it gets violent, shoot first. Leroy, all of this, all of this is the result of the lies spun by Donald Trump, his allies, many of whom are elected officials representing the state of Georgia ever since the 2020 presidential election. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, there's one thing about this that uh, we've been able to track uh, in all media, and that is the fact that uh, the former president has been consistent in the idea that the 2020 election was, was stolen. Uh, as evidence of that, they uh, cooked up uh, a couple of things that they claimed uh, to say that this is how the cheating has transpired. Uh, you know, phony voters, uh, now denial at the polls. Um, this is, if you look at the fundraising emails that you get from still the Trump campaign, I still get those. Uh, they very much lean into this, uh, this denial. Uh, and, uh, you know, it really does. Uh, at this point, <laughs> uh, you know, become what we see, what we've seen with January 6th. If you think about um, all the, the, the things that went that led up to January 6th and the constant pumping people of misinformation, uh, it's not abated. And quite frankly, if you think about what's happening with Twitter at the moment, there is some legitimate fear that more of this will, will happen. Um, now, all of that said, I will say this of what we're seeing at the polls as we're talking to people. Uh, many people are saying that they are tired of uh, what we've had in terms of uh, thinking about electric security and their vote, uh, political chaos, and they're looking for normalcy. So I don't know how that's going to translate into how people vote, but we are seeing that consistently today as people walk up and we talk about what motivated them to come to the polls. Um, okay, let's talk about turnout today. Let's talk about overall turnout and what we think. Uh, we're headed for it tonight. So, Chuck, uh, you've covered elections for a very long time. Let me start with you. We know that about 38 percent of the voters in the state have already cast ballots in early voting, in person, in absentee voting. Uh, 200, I mean, 2.5 plus million people have cast ballots. According to many of reports we're hearing, turnout has been relatively light. I think Donna made that point, uh, and certainly uh, that's what Leroy found at his polling place, too. Um, so we really don't know if we're going to reach the four-plus million at this point that has been predicted in this race, because we don't know if the, if the vote's been front-loaded, right? But is there any way to look at the turnout as it's developing today and reach conclusions about where this election is headed in terms of who wins which race? Is, is that for me, Bill? <clears throat> yeah, I'm sorry, um, yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I'm not sure. Yesterday, the Republican fly around, uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger said he expected 2 million at the polls today. It doesn't look like we're going to get there. So, you know, what does it mean for certain races? And if you look at Muskogee County, some of the African-American, traditionally African-American polling places are, are doing pretty well this morning. They're having longer, they're having more turnout than some of the other places in town, what we're being told by election officials. So, I mean, I don't know. I think a lot of people did vote early. I think people who traditionally would have voted today did vote early because it was just too easy not to. I mean, you know, they made it easy in Muskogee County. We had three sites, and they were open 17 consecutive days, 7 to 7. You know, you literally were riding by them when you were going to the grocery store. I mean, it was just too easy not to to vote early, and I did it on Sunday afternoon a couple a week or so ago, just because I, I literally rode by it. So I mean, I don't know. I mean, and I know that probably didn't answer your question, but that's probably the best I can do, Bill. 
Well, it's a hard question. I mean, we don't know the answer. It's all based on speculation, obviously. But Riley, jump in. You know, I think that it's hard to tell things from looking at the numbers. But if you think about it on the flip side, where are the candidates? Where have the candidates been yesterday and today? So I was with Stacey Abrams yesterday while she was on Georgia State University's campus, and I was with Warnock today while he was on the Morehouse campus, his alma mater, and they were targeting young voters. And turnout has been actually surprisingly low among young voters. So I think that that's where we can get the hints about where we're trying to boost turnout on the different campaigns. You know, they were telling each each student, hey, did you vote? Okay, go now tell three new friends to vote. You know, so that's where we're going to see, you know, where the campaigns think they're falling behind or where they think they need to make up some votes in the final hours. Well, that's a really good way to approach that question. So, Donna, we know from early voting that almost just about 30 percent of the early vote is from African-American voters. If you're a Democrat, uh, that's the essential number you must reach if you expect to be able to win an election. You also have to get about 30 percent of the white vote at the same time. Um, so it's not surprising that um, Warnock and uh, uh, Abrams would be making their pitches either to African-American audiences or younger uh, voters. But young voter early voting has been very weak compared to pat- the uh, election in 2020. Right. And, and not only are we noticing it, but people, everybody is noticing that. And there's been a, an effort to try to get these young people to the polls, but they're not looking at what was happening in this country in the same way we are. And, and so I don't think they truly get the importance of getting out to vote or understand all the nuances. I think like everybody else, they're tired of all the the campaigning that's going on, what they're seeing on their feeds, on social media, and that kind of thing. So I think that has a lot to do with it. The places I went today were all African-American strongholds, including Westlake High School, which is usually a big place for people to vote. There were maybe a half dozen cars in the parking lot. I saw no one going in and out. And it is just one of those times. And the school is out. All Fulton County schools are on um, remote learning today. Uh, they actually probably could have had school today, given that they didn't have people out there. I think those who were going to vote already did so, and uh, we're just not going to see those numbers that the Secretary of State may have been pre- predicting for today. Um, Leroy, we certainly know that Stacey Abrams has built an extraordinary machine for identifying and getting out voters. We saw it in 2018. There's no question that um, the work that she and her um, Fair Fight organization did was important in giving Joe Biden a victory in 2020 and certainly helped Warnock and Ossoff win those Senate runoffs. She's going to need everything. She's going to really need help uh, today, it appears to us. Yes? Yes. Yes, that, that, that's true. I mean, you know, ultimately, uh, the dynamics of this race compared to four years ago changed. Uh, I think that Stacey Abrams, uh, looking at the political conditions of today versus then, um, I think the national political headwinds are, are against both she and Raphael Warnock. Uh, but even given that, though, it's, it's an incumbent governor now and not an open seat. Uh, but there are some things, too, that um, I think that Abrams, uh, yes, she'll need some help, but I think there's some things she points to that could help her today. Uh, first, uh, talking about uh, what the polling really measures, they, those are likely voters, right? Uh, and so she, she feels like that she can get voters who are a little bit, little bit more sporadic to come to the polls, motivated by some things that she thinks that she's strong on, especially when you think about abortion and motivated young women who may come to vote precisely because of that. So if she gets more women and more new voters, because she points to that, if you look at what happened the last time she was able to motivate a bunch of new voters, then perhaps that could close a gap that polling certainly has identified that she must close today. Chuck? uh, Bill, playing off what Leroy just said, let's also be honest. She's facing a highly skilled, highly motivated politician in Brian Kemp. The way Governor Kemp has run this race, and you go back to the runoff with Casey Cagle four years ago into the race with Abram, then 
everything that happened with the pandemic, then into the challenge this year in the primary, and then into this race, Kemp has made really smart moves at every turn. He he has touted his record. You may not agree with him. You may not agree with some of the things he's done, but he has touted that record hard, and he did it here yesterday. I mean, he was saying, I did what I said I was going to do, and he said, no, I'm going to fight for you. That's what I've been doing. And he had, and during his fly around here, and, you know, I think if, when this is all said and done, if he does beat Abrams tonight, and the polls seem to say does, and you can tell that it looks like it's headed that way, but I'm not going to say it's there yet. But if that happens, he will, in this calendar year, well, in the last four years, he will have turned back Abrams twice and turned back a Donald Trump back primary challenge by 50 points. There aren't many Republicans in the country that will have those credentials. Well, uh, Riley, let's pick up on that for just a moment. Um, we've seen again in polling uh, that Republicans on the ballot, especially in those what we call constitutional offices, lieutenant governor, attorney general, insurance commissioner, and the like. Um, Republicans in the polling, AJC polling, other polling, seem to be in some of those races significantly ahead. In the AG's race, Jen Jordan has made it a bit closer against Chris Carr, it appears. But I guess the question becomes, is Kemp pulling these people along? How powerful is are are the people who are turning out for him in helping those lower ballot uh, candidates? You know, it, it's interesting because Kemp is such a different candidate in this race than he is in 2018. And the only thing he harps on, right, is look at my record. Look at what I've done. I did exactly what I was saying I was going to do. And I think that we heard from the voter um, in coverage from um, our station right before we jumped on Political Rewind about stability. And I think that there's a lot of flux in politics right now, uh, uh, so much in flux at the com- in the country that a lot of people, that's what they're looking for is kind of, you know, this continued status quo. Um, and I think that that also helps the other statewide candidates um, that are they're trying to be reelected. So we're going to watch uh, those down-ballot races uh, closely uh, tonight as well. Uh, Donna, let's talk about the uh, Senate race. Uh, people who were listening to Political Rewind's uh, the 9 a.m. live show that we did uh, heard Rick Dent, who has been a frequent contributor to this show, especially during the election season, because he really, no one follows the political advertising, the money spent more closely than he does. But, but he also... Uh, has been in politics for a very long time, and he's created a model for how he ca- he believes he can predict with some accuracy the outcome of races. And and here's why I mentioned Rick, Donna, in, in in Rick Dent's model for the Senate race, he shows Raphael Warnock with 49.38 percent of the vote, and Herschel Walker with 49.35% of the vote. The vote. And it's, it, it suggests to me that we're almost certainly headed for a runoff or that each of them is close enough to possibly get over the threshold uh, tonight. I don't really know what to make of it. Yeah, it is interesting. I heard Rick mention that on the show today, and I will be at the Herschel Walker watch party tonight covering that for um, both the GPB and uh, PBS. And I wondered if anybody had heard that. I think that's where we'll see uh, we'll, we'll see people tonight really watching those numbers, really on edge about what's going to happen with their candidate. Uh, it's one of those things where you wonder if it's really, if what we're seeing is really an indication of where our country is, that much divided so that it is almost equal on each side. Uh, so it, it will be interesting to see how every, everything plays out tonight. And um, I'll, I'll be talking to a lot of people about their feelings about it tonight. <laughs> Leroy? Well, if you look at uh, the money in Georgia, it's been a ton spent on both sides for this race because the stakes are so high. Uh, there, there's a part of this that's been nationalized. Our national politics has certainly been reflected into this. So if you think about the issues that 
uh, have been discussed in this race. I mean, they are national issues. Uh, the Walker campaign has tried uh, to tie uh, Warnock with Biden. That was their their tack. And, and also, of course, the uh, Warnock campaign has questioned uh, Walker's fitness for office. But the abortion issue, which is a national issue, has also been uh, a, a, a common theme that, that they've lost. So, again, those numbers are that tight because it's, this race has been nationalized, but also it, it does speak to the state of Georgia. Uh, if we if we look at the fact that uh, we've got an incumbent senator fighting for his life, uh, that's really not been the case uh, in Georgia uh, in a long time, because really the Republicans had been winning, and uh, and they and they would win comfortably. Uh, so the fact we've got a Democrat uh, incumbent, yes, and the fact that that incumbent is having to fight uh, furiously to stave off a challenger, just speaks to how closely divided this electorate is. Uh, I got to get to a break. Uh, and I know, Riley Bunch, you've ha- already had a long day. You're going to have to get ready to go over to Stacey Abrams' headquarters. So we're going to let you uh, go and uh, wish you well tonight. You're going to be part of Peter Biello's 7 p.m. Uh, special uh, on GPB uh, radio and on our digital platforms as well. So our uh, listeners can look forward to hearing Peter and uh, hearing you later. Thanks for being with us, Riley. Let's get to our first break back in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. WRBL-TV's Chuck Williams, AJC Managing Editor Leroy Chapman, and GPB-TV Lawmakers host Donald Lowry join me for uh, this special live 2 p.m. edition of Political Rewind. Chuck, um, talking about Raphael Warnock, uh, you interviewed him uh, just the other day. And, and one of the things you asked him to respond to, I think, is Herschel Walker's really harsh attack on him just the other day Herschel Walker said he was that Warnock is a socialist. He was going to. He's trying to destroy your families and, and more. Tell, remind us of what else he had to say. Well, I covered uh, Herschel Walker Friday afternoon in a rally up in Lagrange, and he said he called him a Marxist. He said. Raphael Warnock's a Marxist. He wants to abolish the family. He wants to abolish um, the police, and he wants to abolish, quote, the United States of America. And, I mean, I've heard a lot of political rhetoric over the years. And political rhetoric, particularly when you get in, you know, red meat or blue meat, you know, rallies where they're throwing it to the base, you kind of hear stuff. But that was a little different for me. I I don't think I'd ever heard a candidate use the term abolish the United States. I thought that was interesting. And yesterday I got to talk to Senator Warnock and, you know, I read the quote to him, essentially read the quote to him. And I said, uh, I said, this is what he said at a rally I was at in LaGrange. And it was a one-on-one interview and we were on the bus. So there was a little, it was quiet. He had a chance to sort of listen and answer. It wasn't in one of the um, gaggles. And, you know, and basically, you know, he said that he called it over-the-top rhetoric or language, over-the-top language, I think was the term that Senator Warnock used. And he just said that it shows he's not a serious person. These are serious times, and he doesn't have the medal to be a United States senator. And that, that was interesting to take something like that off of the trail and then two days later, tell the candidate, three days later, the candidate he was talking about, hey, this is what he said. How do you respond? I mean, that that is a pretty good takeaway for me from this, from the closing days. Leroy, this has become, it's not new in the 2022 cycle, although it seems to be uh, accelerated over 2020 and 2018. Um, everything's a zero-sum game right now. 
uh, your opponent is not just someone who disagrees with you on issues. He is your enemy. He is out to destroy whatever, the city, the state, the country, uh, so that uh, the winner of an election uh, goes in knowing that um, many, many people think he or she is basically a demon. Yeah, there's a calculation here. Uh, and the calculation is that anger works. And, of course, uh, Herschel Walker, where he was campaigning, what he needs, he needs to get uh, a lot of uh, rural voters, a lot of rural white voters uh, to support him. Uh, he, if you are, are looking at the difference between where he is sitting now and where Brian Kemp is sitting, well, Herschel Walker has to close the deal with more Republicans. So that's part of it. And so if this is a calculation, then that's, that, that's it. And if you look at just tone, too, uh, Reverend Warnock uh, has talked about bipartisanship and even mentioned the fact that he you know, worked on a bill with Ted Cruz. He has compared himself to Johnny Isaacson, you know, a Republican U.S. senator. But he did so in talking about uh, the virtues of civility and, and also statesmanship. So uh, we're seeing two pretty starkly different um, approaches here. But, but those approaches are really calculated because we're, we're Reverend Warnock feels like he uh, needs to help himself are independent voters. And with independent oh. voters, uh, the anger is not going to work. The anger only works at the base. Uh, Donna, um, certainly weigh in as you want in this, but let me add an element to this that I think is interesting. Um, one of the reasons people believe that Brian Kemp uh, has big advantages over Stacey Abrams is he's an incumbent. He has a record on which he can run. And there are people who feel that Abrams took on a big challenge trying to beat an incumbent in that race. Well, Raphael Warnock is an incumbent, too. He has a record to run on um, and at, has a fairly good record that he can run on. Incumbency in that race doesn't seem to have mattered. And the question is, is it because the governor's race is more about the state and where the state stands today, whereas the Senate race is a nationalized race and President Biden, inflation, all have a bigger impact in that arena than what we're dealing with in the state. Yeah, I absolutely agree that I think it's all about that Senate seat. It's control of the Senate. That's it. That's for the people who are um, voting for Herschel Walker. That's a big part of it. I went to two of his campaign rallies last week, one in Smyrna, one in Noonan, and he certainly does talk to that base, and they are riled up. Interestingly, on both occasions, all uh, the people had already voted, so they were just there to hear the rhetoric, to get to get riled up by it, uh, and they like the 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 comments where he's really uh, really attacks Warnock, where he's actually frankly mean in some cases. I would say um, you you could characterize it that way. That's where he got the biggest applause. The things that really make this this whole country really divisive is what they, the base really wants, and uh, it, it's working for him. And so that's why these last few visits, he has gone back to his base to make sure that his base understands who he is. He hasn't been trying to get those independent voters or unlikely voters. He has been working for making sure his base is there for him. Chuck, much the way that Donald Trump uh, ran his campaigns, appealing he, he to the knows. base, not looking for independence. The thing I went to, the rally I went to in LaGrange was a base rally. I mean, and you you got base rhetoric and, you know, playing to them. You know, the one thing I'm going to be looking at tonight as the results start coming in in this race, and this race in particular, is looking very early on and seeing if they're under votes from the governor's race to the Senate race. And the reason I say that is I've talked to three people in the last two days. All three Republican women, all three told me they no voted the Senate race. They just, just just went right over it. They and so to me, as you start talking about this forty nine three five forty nine three eight, you know, if you get into a situation where there is a measurable number of people across this state who voted in the governor's race but took a path on the Senate race, you've got to assume those passes or a majority of those passes were Republicans. Um, not all for sure. I mean, nothing's 100%, but, 
But if there are significant undervotes in the Senate race, I think that I think that may tell us something tonight. And that's you can look at that in your in your local results. Look at that Muskogee County. See if that's a real number when Muskogee County comes in. Um, Chuck, as long as the ball's in your court, you report in uh, uh, in a in, this, in a territory that's covered by the second district of Georgia, which um, is basically the only congressional district in the state this cycle that is competitive. Uh, you've got longtime incumbent Sanford Bishop, uh, who's been there for like 30 years, uh, uh, in, in a, a, an African-American congressman in a district that I think the lines of which lean a little right. It's been redrawn to give the Republicans a better chance. His opponent is Chris West. How is that race shaping up now that we're at Election Day? What are you seeing as we go forward? Bill, I'll tell you what you need to know. Congressman Bishop is holding his watch party at a wine-tasting bar in Columbus tonight, and Mr. West is hosting his watch party at a, at a distillery in Thomasville. So, that, <laughs> I, mean, so I mean, I don't know what's going to happen out of it, but it's like what I got, it's like, and, and I say that in jest, but it's just like you look. So somebody's planning, somebody's playing a drown stars, somebody's playing to celebrate night. I think the district is slightly Democratic. The Republicans have played hands here, but they haven't spent the money. And I think the significant thing about the second district, a lot of people I'm talking to think Bishop is going to win, but win narrowly tonight. And these are Republicans and Democrats. But I think the second congressional district and Chris West are going to be incredibly significant in the footnotes of this election. And I'll tell you why I think that. In the primary, the Republican elite out of D.C. financed a candidate who came off of Fox News, who was a carpetbagger from Atlanta that moved in, Jeremy Hunt. They tried to win the district with Jeremy Hunt. The Repub- a majority of the Republicans in the second district rejected $2.5 million worth of effort to put a Washington-backed candidate into this seat. So Chris West it becomes the embodiment of that rejection. Now, next cycle, it may be different. They may take somebody that's backed out of D.C., but West did not get near the financial support from the national Republicans that Hunt would have gotten had he been in the race. And I but think, you would imagine. Go ahead, finish that. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Bill. I, I was going to say that if it's a competitive district, you would have thought that the national Republicans, despite smarting over not getting their candidate into the general election, would have wanted to do what they could to win that seat. You would think so, but. They didn't spend the money the National Democrats did. I mean, I've seen figures north of $7 million. I mean, I got 15 mailers in my box alone on that race. Most of them bishop or anti-West or pro-bishop. So, okay, I, I got to interrupt you because we got to get to our final break, but I got a lot more I want to ask the panel about when we come back on today's special live 2 p.m. Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Leroy Chapman and Chuck Williams, I know that reporters for your organizations are out talking to voters today, as ours are. Um, I want to give you, I just want to play a little sound that we got from our Grant Blankenship when he went to polling places down in Macon, uh, because I think it gives us a good cross-section of the things that people said they were casting their ballots up about, and uh, then we'll come back and, and talk about what you think of all this. I am Janine Ellis. I'm voting for my right to vote and for um, any decisions about my medical care or anybody's medical care to be between a physician and the patient, and that's it. 
I don't think I can get to anything else. Those are two basic rights. And without those two basic rights, unfortunately, I can't even look at other issues. Do we have more, uh, Chase? Don't, do we have a string of those? Oh, that's the only one? Well, <laughs> I'm sorry about that because we had, uh, I, I listened to some of what Grant had, and he had, uh, Leroy, somebody uh, saying that uh, he was voting for uh, capitalism because he had been convinced that uh, Democrats tend to not be interested in uh, capitalism and a couple of others. I'm sorry we didn't uh, get to those. Leroy, what are you, uh, have you gotten a chance to hear what your reporters are finding yet out in the field? Uh, yeah, so uh, it, it is uh, things along those lines. So the, the first uh, person who was voting was uh, concerned about uh, election uh, security and uh, access to the ballot and uh, also uh, abortion, clearly, although she never used that word. Um, I think that it was clear what she was implying. Uh, so so there, those issues that have come up in polling, uh, we get to the polls today, and there are people who have uh, been affected by, of course, what the ads are saying. Uh, some of the, uh, the the allegations and the back and forth out of the campaigns about um, you know what uh, what what a uh, a camp uh, administration or a, a Abrams administration would look like or what the U.S. Uh, government would look like if uh, the balance of power tips one way or, or another. So those things are showing up. Uh, the advertisements, uh, of course, uh, they, they appeal to the very you know basic fears of Americans. So you are hearing people not talk about nuanced positions. They are talking about, you know, big, scary themes. So there is that. Now, I'll say the flip side also is that out of all the big, scary themes that, that may animate some votes are people who are saying that uh, I, you know, want and I hope my vote helps with, you know, taking some of the chaos and some of the anger out of politics. <laughs> so there is some fatigue going on with voters who keep hearing about how everything is at stake, the world's about to end, or all of my rights are gonna be taken if this candidate or that candidate is selected. So there's a little bit of fatigue there. So it'll be interesting to see exactly what happens uh, when we get down to uh, looking at, uh, you know, what some of the polls say uh, after the election, and we will be engaged in some of that with Associated Press uh, and looking at uh, some polling afterward uh, to, to figure out uh, you know, what the folks who show, showed up today and voted in person, what really got them out to vote. Donna, I think Democrats are going to be asking themselves for quite a while after this election is over, what happened to abortion as a motivating issue? Now, let, let's be careful. It still may be an underlying issue that will drive women, especially to the polls, um, and, and it could have an, an influence on the outcome of the races. But it certainly in the polling has not shown up as the biggest motivating factor. And I think campaigns like the Abrams campaign for a while really put their money behind uh, the very restrictive abortion law that uh, Brian Kemp had passed and thought that might really do them some good. We don't quite know how it will play out, but it's obvious that the economy is the bigger issue. Now, I, it hasn't gone away as an issue. Abortion has not gone away as, as an issue. I've interviewed people who that's definitely their main reason for voting. But um, for most of the people, it is about their wallet, their their income, their, you know, their budget. The inflation issue is what is really driving everything in terms of how they feel about the way the country is right now. And a little bit of what... Um, we heard Leroy just talking about, and it is that feeling that maybe some kind of way their vote can maybe make this country come together a little bit more. I don't think that's going to happen. But just voting more on those kind of issues that seem more more personal to them in that way, it affects them immediately. And, you know, is what what I'm hearing that people are interested in, making sure that they are able to have, you know, go to the grocery store and not have to spend as much as they have um, being able to um, take care of their families. That's the main thing, I think, that really took, uh, you know, the abortion issue just went to the um, back burner after the inflation just went so high. Chuck, Politico uh, published a story, put up a story on their website with a headline, abortion is illegal in a quarter of the country as, as we head into Election Day. In the first four months, 
since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. 13 states have banned abortion starting at conception. At uh, Georgia prohibits the procedure about six weeks into a pregnancy. Um, and, and just in, in a, not his final speech of the campaign, but in the previous speech, President Biden p- implored voters to please remember the anger they felt right after the Supreme Court overturned Roe. He himself recognized then that it had somehow, uh, lo- the passion had gone out of that issue, it appears. Well, you know, Donna is right. It is a central issue for some voters. Many of them are women. Some, I mean, but it is a key issue for them. But I think what has happened because of our economic situation right now, and we're 30 years removed from the quote by James Carville and the Clinton campaign, it's the economy, stupid. And that, I mean, you know, that applies right now. It's the economy, stupid. I mean, if people... People will vote their pocketbooks when their pocketbooks are bleeding money. Let's put our elections here uh, into a national perspective for a couple minutes, Leroy. Um, we, we know that Georgia will certainly maintain a majority Republican House, U.S. House uh, delegation, uh, we don't know. Again, the Senate is up for grabs. Georgia could once again, if there's a runoff, uh, be the state that determines after December 6th, the date of a runoff, whether the uh, the Senate is controlled by Republicans or Democrats. But but I, it, it, again, in a national perspective, Leroy, both uh, the Cook Report and Larry Sabato's crystal ball in their final projections of what they're seeing for the House races uh, think Uh, uh, Cook thinks that Republicans are likely to pick up between 15 and 30 seats. 30 seats would be a blowout. Um, And uh, uh, meanwhile, Sabato thinks that Republicans will pick up about 24 seats. They only need five to take control of the U.S. House. If the House becomes Republican, then a potential runoff between Warnock and, and Walker becomes even more crucial uh, because the Senate may be the one place where there could be a buffer uh, against Congress really rejecting everything that President Biden tries to do uh, as he moves forward. Yeah, if we get to a runoff, uh, Georgia will again be the center of the political universe in this country. And, and that very well could happen. I mean, we've been talking about how whisker thin this is, uh, with no one really polling at a majority uh, at any time uh, during the time that we've been polling and polls that we followed. So this is exactly where we can be. So, uh, yeah, there is an expectation that Republicans will take control of the House. Uh, historically, that's uh, in keeping with what's happened during midterms of term elections. Um, you know, ironically, uh, the, the wave may not be as big as once thought, but it doesn't have to be big. You're right. The numbers say that in the, in the House, uh, it only needs to be five. And, of course, uh, in the Senate, the Senate's virtually already deadlocked. So, yeah, uh, the stakes are enormous. And what we're going to see if we are in a runoff is a ton of money is going to return to Georgia. A lot of operatives, lots of it's going to be a battle of who can get out to vote. And, you know, if we're thinking about uh, what we're talking about with politics and how it's framed uh, and how the stakes are, are, you know, democracy is at stake, that sort of thing. We're going to see that. Uh, and we're going to see it times a thousand <laughs> if that happens. So uh, I think uh, that voters here, if they are tired of election ads, uh, that uh, they're going to get inundated with more. Uh, we'll see political celebrities who come here. And again, this will be the, the center of the universe. And there will be a lot of surrogates. This will be a race that will be a, a kind of a proxy race for, uh, I think, going into the future as well. If uh, of, just to put it in power. a... Uh, uh, 30 seats would be a big victory for Republicans, to put it in a little historical context, when Newt Gingrich led the uh, Republicans' effort in 1994, uh, the off-year election in the first uh, term of Bill Clinton, uh, there was a swing of 54 seats from the Democratic to the Republican Party, and it made Newt Gingrich the Speaker of the House back then. Donna, we're almost out of time, but one last question. observation, uh, if I could, with you. We know that the Secretary of State's office, we know that the new election laws 
uh, honor the fact that voters need to hear results as quickly as possible. The law has changed so that uh, early votes can be tabulated ahead of time. Gabe Sterling told us on our show Friday he's expecting to see the first returns by 7.15 tonight. In every case, all ballots have to be counted by the end of tomorrow. Um, So they're hoping to head off concerns about fraud somewhere down the line. I think that's the most exciting thing about today is that we may hear um, the, the results coming in faster. We know that the that these um, these different counties, the elections boards, are counting right now those um, those uh, absentee votes. They were able to start with those. They were able to start with their, today. They started counting the early uh, votes, those kinds of things. And so we may hear about things a lot quicker. That doesn't with things being so close, of course. That doesn't mean we'll have final answers, but at least we'll get some relief from um, not having it drag out so long today. Chuck, we're really out of time, but one last note. If this Senate race is as close as people predict, we really may not know because military overseas votes aren't due until next Monday. And if it's that close, we may take until then to get a sense of what's happened in the Senate race, right? Let's hope not. And, you know, and if it hits the thirty. <laughs> Stanford Bishop could be in trouble down here in the 2nd District. Oh, okay. We will watch that. Uh, Chuck Williams, uh, have fun tonight on the set at WRBL-TV as an analyst. Uh, Leroy Chapman, we look forward to reading what all of your reporters tell us tomorrow. And uh, uh, Donna, I am so glad you were with us uh, today. But thank you, Donna Lowry, for being with us. Good luck on your show, uh, Lawmakers Beyond the Dome on Sunday. Everybody, we'll be back tomorrow morning with another live show and then with another live show at two tomorrow afternoon. I hope you join us. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. You still got, what, four hours that you can go out and cast your ballot if you haven't done it yet. Take care, everybody. See you tomorrow.